Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year, for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Charles Scribner III is the author of Scribner's Five Generations in Publishing. Charlie is the son of book publisher Charles Scribner and figure skater Joan Sunderland Scribner. He received his PhD in art history in 1977 and taught Baroque art in Princeton's Department of Art and Archaeology. Then he joined his father at the family publishing house, Charles Scribner's Sons, founded in 1846. With Talleyrand as his model, he remained at Scribner's through three changes in ownership, Macmillan, Maxwell, and Viacom, overseeing the publication of its literary classics. He was a commentator for television documentaries on Edith Wharton, BBC PBS, Fitzgerald, and Hemingway, A&E Biography. As an art historian, Scribner has lectured widely on Baroque art at universities and museums, including the Metropolitan, National Gallery, Getty, Frick, and Morgan Library. For Rubens' 400th anniversary in 1977, he made a television program on Rubens' Eucharist tapestries for PBS, the subject of his first book, The Triumph of the Eucharist. His monographs on Rubens and Bernini were published by Abrams in its Masters of Art series, followed by his books on art and faith, The Shadow of God, Home by Another Root, and Sacred Muse, a preface to Christian art and music, and most recently, his biography and publishing history. Married to Richie Marco Scribner, an artist, he remains rooted to his lifelong zip code in New York City. And luckily, we did this podcast in person, which was quite a treat. 
Welcome, Charles. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you, Zibby. It's such a treat to be here. (laughs) I know we have this funny history together with you living in the apartment I grew up in, which is amazing. How is the apartment, by the way? Well, I wish we had stayed in it because uh, it's next door to my wife's best friend's daughter's apartment and her sister, Alexandra Andrews, was on your show. That's right. And you were our first trick-or-treater. I was. Back in 1987. Oh, my goodness. Well, (laughs) and here we are just after Halloween, many years later. Very funny. Well, your parents moved out of it, and my wife eventually said she couldn't stand the bus stopping below the bedroom window every day. So we moved to 72nd Street, Mayor Lindsay's old apartment. Okay. And guess what they did? They rerouted the bus. No. (laughs) You can't get away from it. No. Uh, this is New York. Oh, my gosh. We enjoy it. I should get you like a framed photo of a Metro card or something like that. Anyway, tell listeners about your book. Well, this was the book that I never expected to write. I mean, I'd written art books as an art historian, and I had an idea for a book about uh, walking tours of Rome with Caravaggio and Bernini, and I mentioned it to my editor, Michelle Rapkin. She had edited my last four books. Two of them were journals. And then there was a very short book I wrote on an iPhone in Florida called Sacred Muse about religious art and music. If you you want a short book, (laughs) write it digit by digit on an iPhone. It's guaranteed to be short. (laughs) And then uh, she said, no, no, no. She said, I think remembering my father's oral history, but he had lost the ability to read and write Mm -hmm. later through a neurological problem. But he he spoke better than most people can write. So it was fine. And it was edited by the great Jacques Barzin, whose grandson was on your podcast. And I think remembering that, she said, no, she said, you really must, you should write the story of the whole family history of the publishing business. And I said, why? And she said, because if you don't, all those stories you've told me over the years will be lost. So I was down in Florida in exile, as I call it. I know that people will, you stay in New York, I stay in New York, your dad stays in New York. <laughs> uh, some of us still do, but th- there's this, you know, flight to the to the, the, the tropics or, the, or Florida anyway, but that's not for me. But I have to be down there two months every winter because my wife likes the warm weather. So I call it Florida exile. <laughs> and The last year I wrote the art book on the iPhone, this year I decided, okay, I'll bring my laptop. And I just started writing each day. And I thought, well, I've got two months. I think I can do that because I wanted a a fairly short book. I was not going to do Barbara Streisand, a thousand <laughs> pages, you know, over 10 years. Yeah. Um, I'm, as, as Scott Berg, the great uh, biographer, said to me way back at Princeton, he said, Charlie, I'm a marathon runner. You're a sprinter. <laughs> yes, I okay. like short books. My ideal, well, your book, Bookends, is perfect length. Thanks. My feeling is The Great Gatsby sort of set the standard for me. <laughs> anyway, uh, but I got so into it. And I had a puppy to look after, but I don't play golf. I don't play bridge. I don't drink. What am I going to do in Florida? <laughs> so I started tennis? like, yeah, well, I do play a little tennis. Okay. That's only like an hour. Yeah. Okay. But, and I, I, got, I went to the gym. But that leaves a lot of the day. So I would sit at the little dining room table in the cottage we rented for two months. And I started in the morning and I got so into it that I thought, well, I'll, after I feed the puppy lunch, I'll write in the afternoon, and then I'd go to the gym, and then I'd write in the evening. And seven pages a day times 30 days 
is why it's a 210-page book. Wow. And then it's done. But you had two months. Well, the second month was really a luxury because I would send it to former colleagues, their sections, and I'd say, please read this and tell me, did I remember this correctly? Hmm. Does this correspond to your memory? So I really wanted it to be accurate. And it was a great opportunity to reconnect with our, our alumni, so to speak, whom I've been out of publishing for 20 years, almost 19 years. And I thought, this is great. I mean, it's really, my last sentence in the book really summed up the experience. It was my father's favorite quotation from Montaigne, who wrote, I have no more made my book than my book has made me. And that was the experience of writing this. It was the book really created an experience. Just had to come out. It had to come out. And I think because I had in mind I was writing it for the three grandchildren. Mm -hmm. I think, and I also had in mind that we, my wife and I listen going back and forth to Long Island. We listen to more books than we read, mm, which is why your podcast is so enjoyable. Oh, thank but, you. And I had in mind having been, you know, as a schoolboy wanting to be an actor, I thought I'd really like to narrate this book. And actually, the narrated book, the Audible book, yeah. was set up before I had a publisher for the printed book. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because I ran into a Scribner alum who had come to work with us as a very young man in his early 20s, right out of Harvard. And I hadn't seen him in 20 years. And now he'd had three children, and the youngest and his wife were at the pool. And he is a big executor at Audible. Oh. Matthew Thornton in Newark. Oh, my gosh. And he lined the whole thing up. It was the greatest experience having uh, they gave gave me the best director and uh, the best sound engineer and as you know the the facilities are magnificent yes and i think you know it was an easy book to narrate or to read rather they wouldn't let me narrate it they were they as you know they're they're so strict mm -hmm. it has to be word perfect yes to the text or oh. they'll stop you oh i know and that let's I just, try that passage again. That, let's do that yeah, one again. <laughs> that I discovered. Okay. I mean, now most writers out, out there listening are not going to be prepared to do this. But the ultimate proofreading is reading your book out loud. Mm -hmm. Because every once in a while, they'd stop me and they'd say, oh, no, you got that word wrong. And I'd look and I'd say, no, I made a mistake. <laughs> I, I said it right. I'll have the text corrected. Interesting. And so that is the ultimate proofreading because your eyes can glaze over errors. You you see the word you expect to see mm -hmm. when you're reading, especially if you've written it. Yep. But even an editor, once they're reading, they kind of know where the sentence is going. Mm -hmm. And if you leave out a the or you put in a second the, they're going to miss it. Mm -hmm. But if you say it out loud, you catch it. Wow. So that was a wonderful experience. And I must say, granted, she's... A superstar, but my book took eight hours to record, and yours was probably close to that. Probably there, more yeah, or less, right? Actually, for bookends, they were like, "You're going to have to block out a whole week of time," and I was like, "No, no, it's not going to take me a week." And they're like, "No, it, I'm sure it will." So I, they made me block out a whole week, and I did it in like a day and a couple extra. Hours. Did you really? Yeah. Wow. Well, I took my I took more than that. I think I did it in three days. But yeah, I was like, I don't have, I don't. But now what was I? I've lost my train of thought. Oh, you were you were doing the fabulous audiobook. You were saying it was easy to narrate, probably because it was first the way you told the the way you wrote the story was so conversational. Well, that, I think that's I think maybe in the back of my mind, I had it that I wanted to record this book for the grandchildren, mm -hmm. and I, so I think that affects the style of writing. 
You cannot write like William Faulkner. You <laughs> cannot write those complicated, convoluted sentences and hope to narrate it. True. You know, maybe Sir Lawrence Olivier could narrate I don't think it. he was thinking about the audiobook. No, he wasn't. <laughs> no, he wasn't. But it it made for a much more conversational text, I hope. It did. And that's, it's, you conveyed so much history through not that many pages, as you said. It's nice, short, but every chapter, everything had a really interesting anecdote or story or piece of history that I didn't know and that I was like, huh, no way. And that's impressive. Well, I think... I, I think I wanted to make it clear that nobody these days, who's going to re- want to read 170 years of, of company history, right? Even if it's got interesting authors. But this sort of, you know, heavily researched, mm-hmm. footnoted, if I'd given myself 10 years, yes, I could have written 900 pages, History of Scrimmers, but nobody would read it. <laughs> they might look in the index, but nobody would read it. I wanted to to mix... Uh, I wanted to mix personal memories, experiences with the history. I wanted to tell the story, but also make make it clear this is a personal yep. history. This is not, I am not Walter Isaacson or <laughs> Doris Kearns Goodwin. You know, this th- that's it's not that kind of book. So what would people who have heard the name Scribner's not know that you share in the book? Like, what, what do you want them to know? Well, it took off really in a very different direction from where it started. I mean, when the my the founder, who was my great-great-grandfather, set it up in an unused chapel of the Brick Church, which is, was then later the New York Times building and is now Pace University near Wall Street, uh, he really intended it to be a religious publishing house. Mm-hmm. But he had his first bestseller, a biography of Napoleon, about a generation after Napoleon had died, called Napoleon and His Marshals. And that went through many, many printings. And then he had a bestseller, by a non-starter author he who did two books that went nowhere, but his third book was called Reveries of a Bachelor. And that took off. <laughs> and I think the title probably helped. And then, you know, later on, we st- I mean, he loved magazines. So he started a, a little magazine, Hours at Home, which was we'd call today a family values magazine. Mm-hmm. It included an article on missionaries trying to, unsuccessfully trying to get the king of the Hawaiian Islands to give up <laughs> drinking. Uh, but the magazine was successful. The missionaries weren't. But uh, that was followed by a really important magazine, which came out the year he died at the ripe age of 50, called Scribner's Monthly. And that went on for many, many years, eventually was sold by his son, who took over the company, Charles, my great-grandfather Charles, the second Charles. And uh, he wanted a magazine, but the magazine was out of his control. It had other partners, and he didn't want a magazine uh, being controlled that had his name on it by somebody else. Mm -hmm. So it was sold and became the Century Magazine, which had a history of its own. And there was a children's magazine we started called St. Nicholas, with Mary Mapes Dodge as the editor, who wrote Hans Brinker or The Silver Skates, which I put in my book, was a very key book for me as a child because my mother was a professional figure skater. So, you know, that book was important on the shelf. But then later, five years, the clock had to tick for five years before he was allowed to create a competing magazine, and he did it big time, (laughs) Scribner's Magazine. And that went for 50 years. And that brought in talents... Henry James, Edith Wharton's first story was in Scribner's Magazine. Teddy Roosevelt, who wrote lots of books for us afterwards, especially when he became president, 
Scott Fitzgerald had stories published in it, Ernest Hemingway. And those are the writers that are going to be more familiar to the readers, the 20th century, which was really Max Perkins' era of Fitzgerald, Hemingway, Edith Wharton, Thomas Wolfe, and then some kind of oddball books like uh, the autobiography of Benito Mussolini in 1928. <laughs> there was no such thing as cancel culture back then. Today, we'd be canceled. <laughs> but, you know, 1928, nobody really quite understood yet what this was all about. And to balance the scales, I think within a couple of years, we published the Bolshevik communist leader, Leon Trotsky's autobiography. <laughs> and he signed all his letters in red ink to his publisher. Oh, my gosh. And he was, of course, later murdered by Stalin. But, you know, we covered the waterfront. <laughs> and uh, with, uh, 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 on a brighter note, I would point out that during his years out of office, we published and really kept afloat Winston Churchill. And unfortunately, his best-selling books came after the Second World War, and he had not earned back the vast royalties that he got from Scribner. So he was kind of in our debt. So to get fresh money, he went to another publisher, and there was no hard feelings. We look back on it, and I, I say in the book, if, if we didn't have best-selling books by Winston Churchill, we had one really fantastic memoir called My Early Life, which I studied as a schoolboy at boarding wow. school. But we had the consolation of knowing that we help, help keep this man afloat in the uh, manner to which he was born <laughs> until he became prime minister. And I think it's fair to say, won a war through the power of words. Wow, beautiful. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things, and I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help and I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 
a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy, and you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. Okay, keep going. What else? Scribners, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to the reader? What is the reputation? And what is what is something that we don't know? Well, we did. I mentioned children's books. One of the early children's books that everybody would know through the the films or Disney films or videos, if nothing else, Wind in the Willows. Mm-hmm. My great grandfather wanted to turn that down. He turned Fitzgerald later down twice, but Max Perkins kept the faith and Fitzgerald finally was published. Anyway, Wind in the Willows was turned down, except President Roosevelt, who was an author, said to him, absolutely not. You must publish this book. It's going to be a classic. (laughs) And he did. You don't turn down the president of the United States if he's your author. Another book, Peter Pan, was an all-time favorite. Uh, Let's see. What else? My own personal and uh, and something my wife and my parents shared in personal delight was an author later, much later on in the 60s, 70s, 80s, we really launched as a bestseller, and it took a dozen years, was the mystery writer P.D. James, mm-hmm. the English crime writer. And then she was later Baroness James. And we we did her first nine books. Wow. And then after we merged into Macmillan, a larger company, her agent took her to another publishing house. But she remained a close family friend. We loved her. Actually, my wife and I had dinner with her on our honeymoon in London. <laughs> and it was a slightly awkward moment because... <laughs> At dinner, Phyllis, as we called her, turned to this bride of two weeks and said, you know, my dear, you've married a very complicated man. (laughs) Just what a new bride wants to hear, right? From the queen of crime. (laughs) Let's think. What else? Oh, my father. The first author I met, I suspect, I never met Hemingway. But I did, uh, my father was his last publisher. I did know his widow, Mary. I didn't meet Hemingway. Fitzgerald was dead before I was born. The first author I met was the first man to to fly across the Atlantic the year my mother was born, 1927, Hmm. Charles Lindbergh. Wow. And he won a Pulitzer for his book, The Spirit of St. Louis. Well, I said I met him. I was four years yeah. <laughs> old. I don't remember. But he came to dinner in Darien, Connecticut, where we had a summer house a rental for, for one month. And my mother later said, I put in the book, that uh, she was 28 years old. And she had to entertain this author who had flown the Atlantic oh and his wife. He was impossible. He never said a word oh. at dinner. His wife, though, Ann Morrow Lindbergh, utterly charming. Hmm. And my father said that ed- that publishing him, he would measure with a ruler the space between the letter and the period or the semicolon, as if each you know piece of type was like a movable part in his airplane. Uh, that was kind of unnerve wow. unnerving. So, having seen the scope of publishing for from the beginning of Scribner's and the old partnership and everything to today and the acquisition, everything. What have you learned about like publishing? Like, where do you see it going? Like I'm a publisher now, like what should I be thinking about? Like, what did you take away? And where do you think publishing is? If you want to weigh in on any of that. I think that the, I think publishing is 
always going to be changed by technology. Mm-hmm. And, and it will create as many challenges as opportunities, but in the end, the opportunities are greater. Hmm. For example, recorded books. Mm-hmm. They're not going to put the printed book out of business. Right. Well, I say, yes, recorded. I mean, we don't listen to them on tapes anymore, but online. I think that there, I was asked recently, would, do I think that books are going to be displaced? And I, I don't, I real, honestly don't, because 60 years ago, my dad was concerned in the 60s uh, with when film strips and audio visuals were entering the elementary schools. And he thought, are books going to be displaced? And he was having lunch with the head of RCA, General Sarnoff. And RCA then owned Random House Publishing. And he was worrying about the future of books. And the general said to him, he said, look, don't worry about it. Just remember, there are more candles sold annually now than 100 years ago. (laughs) Electricity did not put candles out of business. And there's something special Mm -hmm. about the reading the word on the page, the silent experience. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful to listen to a book. But there's something about when you're reading it silently yes. on, at your own speed, yes. not the narrator's speed. Mm-hmm. And you can stop and you can start. There's an interior dialogue, I think, that, that takes place that cannot be replicated in any other medium. Film. There are a lot of, of, of I've talked a lot about films in this book because so many of our best-selling books were made into famous films. But I think there's, there's something special about reading and I would go a step further, writing. I remember when I was a student, my dad used to say to me, he said, just remember, writing clarifies thinking. Mm-hmm. You think you know something, or you think you know what you want to say, or you think you understand something, but you will find that in the process of writing about it, you will make new discoveries, or the problem will be simplified, or, or appear with more clarity. And I found that to be the case writing this book. I thought a lot. I mean, I grew up in this family and, and I'd heard all these stories. I thought I understood what it was all about, but it was only each day writing it down that things would fit together or a, a one a, an event would hark back to something that happened a century earlier. Or let me see, uh, let's see if I can give you I'll give you a, be- a better example. I, 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 one of the, my favorite parts of the book is talking about my father's last visit to Hemingway when Hemingway was n- had, had lost his place in Cuba because of the you know Cuba, mm-hmm. Bay of Pigs and Castro taking over. And he was kind of, you know, at wit's end. He had a rental apartment in New York on 62nd Street. He was working on two books, the book about bullfighting, which was later published, The Dangerous Summer, And the book, my favorite, Hemingway, the book about Paris, A Movable Feast, Mm -hmm. which had yet to have a title. It was called, he was referred to as the Paris book. I I loved all the insights into titles in the book. I loved that. Oh, my gosh. That was so, so fun. Anyway, keep going. Some authors, Hemingway's titles for what was later A Movable Feast, which was Hotchner and Mary Hemingway came up with that. He had terrible titles. (laughs) The way it was how it was then to write one true sentence. I mean, can you imagine that being a classic? And The Great Gatsby. And The Great Gatsby had worse titles. Tremalchio and West Egg, Among the Ash Heaps and Millionaires was one title. Gold-Hatted Gatsby, The High-Bouncing Lover, 
Crazy. And so forth. Anyway, uh, and then the one he wanted in the end, which fortunately was too late, under the red, white, and blue. Perkins, his editor, was right. The Great Gatsby was the title. It's perfect. And The Immovable Feast was a wonderful title. Anyway, my father, when he, on his last visit to Hemingway, had left with his editor, Harry Bragg, Hemingway handed him uh, a valise, and he said, please lock this in your office cabinet or safe. Please don't lose this. It's got my will in it, my last will. And my father, not thinking, said, oh, if I lose it, I'll shoot myself. And Hemingway replied, ironically now, Mm -hmm. that wouldn't do me any good. (laughs) So he took it back to the office. And then the next day, Hemingway appeared pretending he needed to look up something in the valise. And my father knew full well that all he wanted to do was make sure my father hadn't lost the the will. It was in the safe. Hemingway was happy. He comes out smiling. He sits down in his publisher's desk in his chair. My father had no place to sit in his own (laughs) office. So he says, would you like some coffee? Hemingway says, yes. My father says, comes in. He said, would you like some cream? And he says, yes. And dad says, how much? And Hemingway, typical Hemingway, he says, just enough to change the color. (laughs) Who, what other person would describe putting cream and coffee that way? Totally. That was pure Hemingway. Anyway, that's not my discovery. That was the story. After writing that story, the discovery in writing it was my father never mentioned to me or anyone else to my knowledge the whole point, not the point of the story, but the conclusion, which was really quite a shocking one, which was Hemingway entrusted his handwritten last will, not to his lawyer, who was served as his agent, Alfred Rice, not to a close member of the family. He gave it to his publisher <laughs> to keep for him. And that spoke volumes about the relationship between them. Now, my grandfather had been his, he called him his best friend. And there were two things in the book that I had to do retakes again and again at Audible. One was a letter by Robert Louis Stevenson, who was one of our most loyal authors. And when he was trying to be lured away by Harper, he wrote this wonderful letter to a friend who was involved in it. And he said, you know, the Scribners treated me so well, and I think they've done well by me. There is no amount of money that would make me repay them evil for good. Wow. And when I would read this letter, I would start choking up because this today authors change publishers like they change accountants. (laughs) I mean, that was a degree of loyalty that really moved me. The other part that I had to read over and over because I would start choking up was the condolence letter that Hemingway wrote to my dad when his father died suddenly at age 62. And it was so moving and so loyal. And he said, you don't have to worry about me or or money or anything. You've got my complete loyalty. It was, it, in fact, it's such a beautiful letter. It has been anthologized okay. in, in eulogies and so forth. And that, uh, you know, that, that summed up a relationship that I think is unusual these days. It is. Well, it's a model to aspire to. 
and all of it, the the partnership between publisher and author and all of the great works that came out of Scribner. I mean, it's amazing. It's really amazing. So I just have to say thank you. Thank you for writing all the stories down, even though they weren't intended for random people like me and they oh, were for well. your grandchildren. Still, it's uh, it was wonderful to read and to have, and I can savor and go back and all that. So thank you. And thanks for sharing with our listeners oh, well, as well. It's been such a delight to be here. Even even after, uh, Zibby, <laughs> you were my first trick-or-treater at your old family apartment when we moved it. in. And now here we are 29 years later. Crazy. No. No. No, not 29. Mm-hmm. It's not that long. It's 30. It's 30 no, it's, it was 1987. Yeah. I can't do the math. So 35 years and, later? 13 and 23? 36 years 36 later. 36 years later. Yeah, well, I'm 47 here, now, so... Well, quite a, quite a long stretch. It the years have just vanished. Anyway, <laughs> they have. They really this have. This book was about people, yes. and I hope that that I hope the listeners can appreciate. I wasn't interested in in company history. It's all about the personalities. Absolutely, amazing. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.